welcome to 6969 Fantasy Palace. To enter the Garden of Earthy Delights with anal pleasure, push one on your touchtone telephone. To succumb to the amorous desires of two lusty lasses, push two and join them in the maid's quarters. For your own personal harem of sex slaves, push three and step into the chambers of Marquis de Sade. To descend to Mistress Divine's dungeon of pain and pleasure, push four. And for the kinky surprise of the day, push five and come into the secret closet. To make your selection, wait for the sound of the tone. Then push the number you want on your telephone. If you don't have a touchstone telephone, stay on the line and I'll select for you. Pornography is as old as print. But in the 1980s, the porn industry entered a new era. New technologies allowed Americans to enjoy a greater variety of sexually explicit materials in more ways than ever before, often from within the privacy of their own homes. In addition to magazines like Playboy, which had been around for decades, consumers could purchase new specialty publications like Jugs, Bound and Gagged, and Honcho. You could still see pornographic films in adult theaters, but the invention of the video cassette recorder what our over 30 listeners will recognize as the VCR, brought those pornographic films into people's homes. By 1988, Americans were renting over 200 million X-rated videos a year. Alongside the pornographic video revolution, two new kinds of telephone services transformed sexual entertainment. Due to new credit card technology and the deregulation of the phone industry, Americans could now have an erotic, auditory experience wherever there was a phone line, a simple, and relatively cheap phone call could connect you with Dial-A-Porn, a telephone service offering short erotic recordings. Phone sex lines were more expensive and featured operators, known as fantasy artists, who would act out sexual fantasies for and with you. Reach out, reach out and touch someone. Reach out, call up and just say hi. Reach out, reach out and touch someone. For years, telephone companies had been encouraging customers to reach out and touch someone, but phone sex lines and dial-a-porn transformed the intimacy of phone conversations into a multi-million dollar sexual enterprise. Over the course of the 1980s, telephones, credit cards, and imaginations brought countless people together to co-create sexual fantasies and experience new forms of sexual gratification. Although moaning and whispering voices shaped the phone sex revolution during the 1980s, the loudest voices were not always those of the owners, the operators, or the callers. Often they were the voices of politicians and concerned parents who angrily denounced dial-a-porn and phone sex lines as dangerous. These groups spearheaded legislation and wrote angry articles in the name of protecting children from sexual messages. Their campaigns largely obscured the lives and experiences of the everyday people who worked on the phones. In this episode, we speak with five former fantasy artists who worked on phone sex lines in the 1980s or early 1990s. Their stories help us understand how phone sex lines and dial-a-porn recordings allowed Americans to experiment erotically, form sexual community, experience pleasure, and make money. I'm Lauren Gutterman. And I'm Gillian Frank. Welcome to Sexing History. 970 Must gets me hot dates. Take Dan. He Frenched my clit and tit-fucked me. I deep-throated his hot, stiff dick. I met Bob on 970 Must. He butt-fucked me. And I met Frank. 
I rotorooted his ass and slam fucked him. Anytime I want the most action, I just dial 970-MOST. Two major factors made the phone sex industry possible in the 1980s. The liberalization of obscenity laws during the 1960s and 1970s, and the deregulation of the telephone industry in the early 1980s. In the 1960s, the courts granted greater legal protection to the producers and consumers of sexually explicit material. Legal changes made it easier to produce, distribute, purchase, and possess sexually explicit photographs, films, and writing. Pornography also became an increasingly important and controversial issue in national politics, especially after the 1970 report from a Federal Commission on Pornography and Obscenity. The Presidential Commission on Pornography released its report officially today. A good deal of it had been leaked in recent weeks, and President Nixon had made it clear he wanted no part of it. He hadn't appointed the commission, and he disagreed with what it advocates. The report recommends repeal of all laws forbidding the distribution of any dirty material to adults. It does ask, however, for state laws to keep children from seeing or buying dirty pictures, but not written materials. That, said the commission, just cannot be legislated. And finally, the commission asked for a massive program of sex education so people can deal knowledgeably with such matters. By the early 1980s, the pornography industry was pumping out countless magazines and films and making millions of dollars a year. In 1982, changes to phone companies created new opportunities for producers of adult materials. When the Federal Communications Commission broke up AT&T's national monopoly, it ordered AT&T to sell off its enhanced phone lines. In the past, these enhanced phone lines had offered a variety of pre-recorded services, including jokes, prayers, and weather reports. After deregulation, the cost of operating 1-800 and 1-900 numbers dropped significantly. With costs down, pornographers could now afford to buy 1-900 numbers and use them to promote their magazines and make money. The popular adult magazine High Society led the charge. In May of 1982, it created a service called Free Phone Sex. The service, of course, wasn't free. A call to free phone sex cost an average of seven cents. Five cents went to the phone company, and two cents went to high society. Free phone sex contained a three-minute steamy message that complemented a photo spread in the magazine. Free phone sex was an instant hit and reportedly received 1.5 million calls over its first two months. By February of 1983, half a million callers dialed the free phone sex number each day. By then, this service was popularly known as Dial-A-Porn. Dozens of Dial-A-Porn lines quickly sprang up. Some of the most popular lines received hundreds of thousands of calls a day. Between 1983 and 1988, the Dial-A-Porn industry grossed billions of dollars. Dial-A-Porn, according to one commentator, was the TV dinner of the telephone sex industry. It was cheap, it was quick, and it was pre-packaged for mass audiences. For longer and more customized experiences, there was a second, more expensive option. Live phone sex lines, where you could speak with a so-called fantasy artist. Phone sex companies advertised their services in the back pages of pornography magazines. These advertisements featured women in various stages of undress, telephones to their ears, with captions like, Be seduced by phone. By the end of 1983, 
the phone sex and dial-up porn businesses had become so large that there were more advertisers than spaces to advertise. At the same time, phone sex companies took advantage of the booming adult home video industry and advertised their services at the beginning of pornographic videos. Phone sex workers were drawn to the industry because it paid decently and offered flexible working hours. Some operators took these jobs because they enjoyed the work. Hello, my name is Zoe. I am 47 years old and I have been, I have done phone sex when I was younger and then I took a break and then for the past 17 years I have been doing in-person work with real people. So I had probably already tried some work at coffee shops and stuff and I've always been more adventurous and I'd had a lot of theater skills already from this point. And so when I saw this advertisement, I was like, I can do this. And especially since I already knew that the thing that I was good at was talking and kind of creating a fantasy through role play, through theater, so, and like improvisation. So I, I went that way for those reasons. And being dyslexic and not having any written ability has a big part to do of why I've remained in the industry and why I'm good at it and also why it's kept me. And in a good way. I mean, now I've made it what it is. Laura, a wife and mother of two, also responded to an ad in the newspaper for a fantasy artist. Initially, she thought she was answering an ad for visual artists. Hi, my name is Laura, and when I was 27 years old, I was a fantasy artist on the telephone, and uh, I did it very briefly, and it was really interesting. I had two little kids at home, and I was desperate to find some kind of job I could do. And I saw fantasy artists, and so I put together my little portfolio of my pen and ink drawings of unicorns with moons and stars. And I took it to the address, and I actually showed up with a portfolio in my hand saying, um, Hi, I'm here to apply for the job of fantasy artist. I walked into this room, and I showed the lady all my pictures, and she said, That's really nice. Um, but can you talk about cock? And it was just really difficult for me. I was really kind of not kinky at the time. I was just like young and I was like, oh yeah, I can totally do that because I really needed the job. Phone sex workers typically received little, if any, formal training. They learned their trade on the job and their callers quickly taught them about a range of sexual expressions and a variety of sexual fantasies. The phone sex workers that we interviewed recalled feeling nervous about their lack of sexual knowledge and their lack of sexual experience. Here's Laura. I was so terrified because I, um, I thought, you know, okay, well, how much can you say about sex? Like, oh, put it in and it goes in, then it goes out, then it goes in, then it goes out. You know, I could probably describe a blowjob adequately, but I didn't know anything about any kind of sex other than vanilla sex. I had never, I didn't know people spanked each other. I didn't know, um, I mean, I only like vaguely knew about butt sex and that wasn't something anybody I knew was probably doing. So I was terrified that somebody was gonna to wanna to talk about something that I didn't really know about. And I asked the woman, her name was Tiffany. I asked her like, what do I do if they wanna talk about something I don't know about? She goes, well, you get them to tell you about that thing and then you just give it back to them and if you're creative you can make something up and so I kind of did that but the like a regular client I had was a 
submissive guy that always wanted to talk about why I was pulling the collar on his leash back so hard. And I just had no idea. I just didn't have a clue. So pretty much every call I took, unless it was a regular, I was terrified they were going to want to talk about something that I didn't know about and I was going to get caught out for, for not being sexy enough. Here's Zoe. So I had only read a lot of words at this point, so I wasn't very sexually experienced, but in my mind, I had had lots of sex in books. So I was ready. I was ready to get these words out of my mouth. And, but I hadn't heard them because my family really didn't talk like that. And I didn't really have an outlet. And I was young. I was like 20 at this point. And so I, the first day of work there, I was like, twat, twat. I'm like, could I, that was a word you could use. I'm like, yeah, fuck my twat. And the guy's like, is this your first day here? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, yeah, I can tell. The word is twat. And that was like a total learning disability moment of not knowing how some of these words were sound pronounced. Phone sex operators' work experiences differed depending on the size of the company. Zoe, who worked for a large phone sex company, remembers the long, tiring shifts. This was all on shift work. This was all over the United States. People were calling in at all times. So, you know, people have hard-ons at 6 a.m. somewhere, and we're given literally a phone and told to, you know, chit-chat about an idea of sexuality and being fucked for eight hours straight with, like, a 15-minute break and then another half-an-hour lunch break and then a 15-minute break. So, like, it was really hard on the voice. And then I got off at, like, 11.45, and then I would catch the midnight bus home to my home and I'd be very tired and it was very isolating. Laura was employed by a smaller company that allowed her to work from home. Well, I decided to work from home because I had these little, these two little kids and my idea was I was going to only take calls when they were either having nap time or they had gone down to bed. And I had a husband at the time, he was totally down to like run interference. But customers, especially regulars, didn't really know or respect my my time frame that I wanted to do this. So I ended up trying to take calls in the middle of the day. Um, I got interrupted by my kids more than once, which was really awkward and weird. Phone sex, of course, was a performance, and phone sex workers were known as fantasy artists for good reason. The models and actresses who appeared in phone sex ads, whether printed or on television, were rarely actually phone sex operators. But, they helped to shape callers' fantasies long before they reached for a phone. What mattered to callers was that the fantasy artist's oral self-presentation seemed real and validated their desires. As Mark explained, this suspension of disbelief was part of what differentiated phone sex work from other types of sex work. Uh, my name is Mark King, but in the 1980s, I went by the name of David on gay phone sex lines. Uh, one of which I worked for, and then another of which I owned, called Telerotic, which became uh, one of the largest gay phone sex companies uh, in the industry. It was uh, it was a little nerve wracking because you know you want to you want to come off as this sexual you know uh, you know Superman sort of guy that is just too good to be believed, and so I learned early on. I had to have lots of details, lots of salient details about uh, why I was built so magnificently and my 
part-time job as a volunteer firefighter or the fact that I just retired from the minor leagues baseball, you know, whatever all of those details were that had to be kind of tossed out in a casual way. Uh, oh, you, you don't believe that I have a 10-inch stick? You should see my brothers because I'm not the biggest one. You know, whatever I could throw out there that seemed to be kind of just enough detail to be convincing. Uh, and, and that was kind of the whole point. You're faking all of it. You're faking who you are, what your background is, how well you are hung, what you are into sexually. You're faking it all. But what's interesting about that dynamic with a customer is they have to believe it's real. And look, I, I, I met everybody that worked for me. None of them were sexual ideals. None of us are. None of us can, can live up to uh, the descriptions that we were giving of ourselves and the lives that we led and what was between our legs. Nobody, <laughs> you know, we were all Olympian uh, in our descriptions. Phone sex workers developed a portfolio of characters that enabled them to cater to as many different callers as possible. And they learned that performing multiple voices was a marketable skill. Here's Laura. She said, watch me do a couple of calls if you think you can do it then your training will be to listen in on calls for a couple of times, and then if you think you can do it, we'll just route you a call. She told me the first the first time, she's like, can you do accents? Because if you can do two girls, um, you can make all the money on a two-girl call. That's how you make the big money in this. And I'm like, well, how can you talk with two voices at the same time? And she had this wet phone rubber thing that she'd hold in her hand that kind of made this blowjob sound, and she'd go, oh, no, no, both girls don't talk at the same time. One girl has a dick in her mouth, and she squishes the thing, and she says, and the other girl talks. She goes, and if you can do ethnic accents, that makes you even more valuable. And I was like, I just don't, I think that's beyond my my skill level. But I was like totally from Southern California, and I was still young, so um, I had this valley girl character that was, that became the character that got most asked for all the time. Uh, my name is Brian Herrera. I'm a professor of theater at Princeton University. And I, let's see, in the very early 1990s, immediately after graduating college, I, my rent, my day job, the job I used to pay my rent was I was a phone sex moderator on um, some of the most uh, profitable party line services servicing the new, greater New York City area. When I started, um, they told me um, they said, you might have a couple personas at hand. And so I developed three personas, one of which was a reliable persona that I used off and on throughout my entire time. And one was one that didn't really click. And then one was one that I could use. It was an easy one. And then, but what they didn't tell me was that one of the most important personas you had to have was the operator persona, the person who would go out and say, hi, this is the operator. What can I do for you? And that was a kind of, uh, a flirty, convivial host kind of job that wasn't necessarily, didn't necessarily lead with the sex, but it led with the sexy. And so that was the persona I didn't know I had to develop. And so it was the first, like I came in my first shift expecting I had Max, who was the top dominant kind of guy. There was Eddie, who was the young, more submissive guy. There was Vince, who was the curious guy. You know, I had these sort of very specific voice, different places in my voice, the whole thing. And, um, but the, what I wasn't prepared for was when somebody who 
called the operator pressing zero, pressing the zero button on their phone. And I came out the line saying, hi, this is the operator. What can I do for you? And like, hi, operator, what's your name? And that was like, <clears throat> I didn't prepare for this. And I knew, thankfully, not to use my own name. And so I, uh, the name that came to mind was the name of my most enduring high school crush. And so I just, I became Dean. Uh, and for the next three years, Dean was a big part of my life and a big part of myself, actually. So, One of my coworkers, I don't know what she had on our bosses, but there were times when she would just at three o'clock in the morning say, I'm going home. Which of course meant that I, the rest of my shift was rotten because her, her lines were totally unattended. There were no women's voices out there. And so her guys were just beeping like crazy. It, just, it was in the quietest time of night when they really needed a woman's voice out there on the line. And I was having to go over to her lines. There was one night when my lines were utterly empty. Nobody was on my lines. And her lines had a handful of people that were just button, pad, button hammers. They were just constantly pressing there. And I would go out there and I'd say, hey, this is the operator. And they were like, you're not the operator. Or they would get homophobic or whatever. And I was like, it was just like, it was terrible. And for reasons I do not understand, I, there was one beep that came on the line line. I wouldn't have done this on running the regular straight lines. I went out and I said, hi, this is Sheila. And using a sort of a modified voice that I felt could pass as somebody who was trans or like what they in the lingo of the day of cross-dressing and so I went out and it was an amazing like suddenly everyone was like hi I said and I went and I said hi this is Sheila this is Sheila and in that moment of the callers mishearing she, my name's Sheila as Sheena this thing happened where I let them just sort of tell me when I when it was working and I went out and for the next two hours I was out there and I periodically would go and like, uh, like I get a beat from one of the other straight lines from the six line or whatever. And then I'd say like, Hey, is there any, any ladies out there? And I go like, uh, no, um, I do have a, a girl talking on the nine line. That's a line for cross-dressers and their admirers. If that's cool with you, I can take you over there. She is talking. And, and they go, and he'd go, Oh, okay. Okay. And I drop him off and I, and then I'd switch gears and like be back to being Sheena again. They say the black is the berry, the sweet of the juice. They say once you go black, you'll never go back. Well, pump your way into the fantasy with hot, horny black girls who can fulfill all of your deepest, darkest desires right now. Imagine your stiff cock and all the pussies you want to do whatever turns you on. This is the hottest new phone line where all your fantasies can be fulfilled by wild and horny gals. Call now. You'll be glad you did. Racial fantasies and stereotypes shape the marketing and making of pornography. Phone sex lines, like the larger pornography industry from which they grew, scripted and provoked callers' fantasies along racial lines. Because callers wanted to play out racialized sexual fantasies, phone sex workers obliged them, and by doing so, played into, perpetuated, and sometimes even subverted racial stereotypes. The segmented nature of the pornography industry inspired racial performances and racial masquerade. Here's Laura. Oh yeah, that, that was the two voices, at, you know, if you can do two ethnic voices. She, did, she used to do a black woman and a Filipino woman at the same time, and that woman was just as pasty white as I am. And 
they I I said oh no I wouldn't be good at that good at that but thinking back on them they were pretty stereotypically terrible um, vocal impressions of of ethnicities but yeah black woman and Filipino woman were two of her characters that she did and she could do them both at the same time with her squishy little foam thing phone sex operators were required to orally perform race in different ways. As part of their repertoire, some white phone sex workers performed with stereotypical black and Asian accents. At the same time, phone sex workers of color were often instructed to talk white. Rather than bringing people together across racial boundaries in ways that might have challenged offensive, racialized sexual stereotypes, the phone sex industry, like the pornography industry itself, exploited these stereotypes for profit. The sexual politics even today are so much different than they were then in terms of uh, our objectification of the black male form. And they were by and large white. I, they would often ask for a black man. They wanted a big black man, right? You know, wow, how novel. I was, I was not able to do that accent very well. I was not a very convincing urban black man. So other people would do those calls. And absolutely, it, it certainly fell along the sort of sexual ob- objectification stereotypes that you might imagine. And, and, it was, and it was always a little strange to say, you know, Tony, would you mind? Okay, he wants a black guy, so you need to act like really black. Here's Brian. Um, different folks did different things. I mean, I know that the, I didn't do this. Um, all I had to say is that I, what I found was if I said I was Latino, that would often activate a whole narrative. Like, because I am Latino. And so I would, so it was just so, but when I would say I was Latino, I could see that the, that the idea of Latino-ness would change how the client, what they would... Like, like it's 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 a it's the idea of just name checking it sometimes. Some some guys I know, like I'm thinking of one guy in particular who was um, uh, biracial Asian white would sometimes do these sort of interesting euphemistic ways of talking about his looks. He could play white, or he could play more exotic, or he could play Asian. Um, one guy I know did have who was he was black, you know, sort of walked in between legibility. Which, which shift of his idiomatics would sometimes not would sometimes not disclose that he was black. And so I remember one of the women who, who worked the line, she was black um, and she was, re- she was red, if that's the right word, she was red as black by colors almost immediately. And, and there would be sort of abusive talk to other operators saying, I don't want to call when that blah, blah is on. And so, so there would be certain ways where the question of if someone was legibly specific, I mean, that was the trick, right? Every erotic fantasy is contoured by specifics. And so the trick I found was trying to find a way that was neutral. You know, so it's that thing of how do you find the line that can be like, what is the measure of, uni- of, of neutrality that's going to be the most appealing, most clear, most specific that can also be adapted to pe- depending on what people want to talk about. As Brian and Mark suggest, Phone sex operators spun fantasies from and in response to widely shared ideas about race. At the same time, phone sex operators became intimately familiar with how the sexual scripts that they performed on the lines depended upon troubling and stereotypical ideas about racial difference. As phone sex operators catered to the diverse desires of their clientele, 
they began to notice larger patterns in sexual behavior. These patterns broke down along gay and straight and male and female lines. Here's Zoe. Well, there was two different types. You know, there was the type that did the party line, and I think that they were basically at home masturbating, listening in, and then some of them wanting an interaction, and then some of them wanting to just listen in. And then definitely when she got to the private line, there was a beginning, middle, and end, you know, where like it was kind of like a phone date where you got to know them, you got to know their, their choice of interaction or what kind of interaction they wanted. Um, and then do that interaction, and then they would come. And then they would always, always, they always hang up without saying anything. Like, it just didn't happen. You know, like, they're cleaning, like, I swear, it's, what would happen is that they would put down the phone to clean up their cum, and then they would just put the phone down. And you're like, all right, whatever. Okay, that's good. So that was, you know, that was kind of always made me laugh, too. Here's Mark. And I will say to you that... We also did straight calls. I, after a while, I hired women, and I had women talking to straight customers. That, you know, we advertised in straight magazines, and the straight guys called. Completely different animals. Completely different customers. Whereas the gay men had lots of ideas of the kind of man they wanted to talk to or the fantasies they might have. Straight men were like, oh, it doesn't matter. Yeah, just give me a hot girl. Yeah, just give me a hot girl. That, that's fine. <laughs> that's it. They're, you know, I don't want to say they didn't have much imagination, but they didn't have much imagination. They really just wanted the girl to coo and coo and go, oh, honey, oh, yes, that's so hot. Oh, do that. And, and, and you know, and, and they'd get off in five minutes, and that was that. They didn't have a need for someone to truly understand them because their sexuality was misunderstood or uh, stigmatized. Gay men cared a lot. And... uh and the kind of conversations they had um, with the employee was very different. Zoe had a more generous reading of straight men's behaviors and desires. She believed that men's sexual behaviors over the phone sprang from deep insecurities and their unmet emotional needs. It was interesting because it was, you know, before this, like, you know, I thought like guys had it made. And then I think this experience really gave me the reality that guys are insecure. They're a little lonely, they're afraid of their dick size, they're, you know, they're just these kind of miscreant, you know, un unnerved creatures like we all are, and that they would be funny and kind and like, you know, concerned, or they'd want to hear about what was going on in my day, or what did I think about this? And like, sometimes I think that was really interesting to me, to see that all these different ways that these men wanted to interact with me. And it wasn't just about sex, especially on the party line. For Susie, working in phone sex provided a window into men's emotional lives and into their sexual anxieties. Hi, my name's Susie. I'm an OG sex worker and a former phone sex operator and owner. I've always found that most guys are just regular Joes that want some female companionship, you know, and then there's your fringe people. And the majority of guys are just pretty typical, you know. They just want to hear how hot they are, how strong they are, how big they are and how good they're making you feel. Although the vast majority of callers to phone sex lines were men, Mark remembers having one straight female client who called him regularly. According to Mark, this woman's needs were quite different from those of his male clients. Our calls together were like her Calgon moment. 
the moment where she could just put on her uh, nightgown. She had put the, she was divorced. She would put the kids to bed once a month, right after payday. I would get a call. Uh, she would place an order, and she would talk to me because we had built this relationship. And she would be in her basement, wearing her prettiest negligee, with a glass of wine in her hand, and it was time for some me time with David, my online persona. And she would talk to me about life and things that were going on. And I would have to be, you know, I, I knew that when I talked to her, it was going to be at least a 45 minute call. And I had to be okay with that. I could have just not taken it and just done three 13 minute calls with gay men. But there was something about her that was so lovely because clearly this was her escape and she was such a lovely woman. And it would be about her life and about her divorce and about the man that she thinks she might have a date with and whatnot. And, um, and only after establishing that kind of rapport, you know, for a while on the phone, could I then start speaking explicitly about sex. Phone sex workers became adept at reading their callers' desires and inviting them to express their fantasies. Here's Susie. Well, you say, um, you know, they do the money thing, and then you get on the phone and go, Hi, this is Susie. How are you today? And they'd say, Oh, you know, I'm great or whatever, and go, Well, what would you like to talk about? And if they were hemming and hawing, you go, Would you like to talk about my, ooh, red lips that might wrap around the head of your cock or would you like to talk about my big bouncing breast or how about my hot steaming pussy and then you know you just listen to hear like when that catch in their voice or their breathing starts like if they're a boob man and you go my big bouncing tits then you know to go down that you know that road and some guys you had to draw out and other guys would sit there and just talk back to you and then you'd get your guys and I've literally, I hate to say this and dude, whoever you were, I'm sorry. One guy just kept talking and talking and I actually went to sleep with the phone up to my ear and woke up and he was still talking. <laughs> Describing all this stuff. Luckily, I only went to sleep and thank God I didn't like make any sleep sound, you know. Phone sex lines created opportunities for some men to communicate desires that they could not express in their day-to-day -day lives. Desires such as group sex, bondage, and cross-dressing. Here's Laura. But I had two really specific and strange clients that liked specific strange things. And one of them, um, his deal was he wanted me to be putting shaving cream all over my naked body and pressing myself up against the wall while I talked to him. And the other guy wanted to discuss specific either Playboy or Penthouse or Hustler, um, specific pages of that, and then he'd want me to tear the pages out, and then he'd want me to tear it down right between her tits, now try to get it to tear right in the middle of her crotch. Um, and the first time I had a call with him, I tore up my husband's Playboy magazine. He's like, hey, like I was going to read that. And I realized after, after that call, I was like, wait, newspaper sounds the same as a magazine tearing. And... <laughs> can sound the same as shaving cream because I totally killed all the propellant in his shaving cream. He's like, I can't shave because I got no propellant in the can because you used it all for that. Necessity was the mother of my invention. I probably would have been better and more successful if I had known more about real sex and what kind of things to make sounds for. For some women, 
Working on phone sex lines allowed them to form friendships and community. Their jobs also created opportunities for sexual exploration. In learning about a variety of sexual practices, gossiping with co-workers, and creating alter egos, these phone sex workers experienced a feeling of sexual freedom and empowerment that was not always possible in their daily lives. Susie, who ran her own company, remembers that drafting phone sex scripts for pre-recorded calls was particularly fun. Oh, it was absolutely fun. That's why we did it. It was fun. I mean, we would laugh till tears would roll out of our eyes. These scripts, I mean, they're funny. They're, you know, I mean, they're sexy, but they're funny. I mean, it's crazy, like fast food. I mean, come on, we're working at a fast food place. And, okay, so it was myself and my friend. So it's like number one and number two. Wow, this fast food job is really a drag. I wish something exciting would happen. Second person. Hey, here comes that guy with the big bulge in his pants. I love how he always stares at my ripe tomatoes. Oh, number one. Yeah, there's his friend, the one with the hot buns. I wonder if they have any mayonnaise for us. Let's ask. Hey, guys, you deserve a break today. My pussy's so hot and juicy, just right to cook your meat in. I hope you like it well done. Mmm, yeah. Well, I like my meat raw. Come over here, baby, and let me wrap my lips around your whopper. I'll do it your way. So yeah, we had good, we had much fun doing it. I mean, that's why we did it, because it was fun and you could make money. Commercial phone sex lines also fostered queer community. Gay male phone sex workers, Mark and Brian, who worked in LA and New York City, recalled that phone sex offered a vital service for younger and more isolated gay men desperate for sexual affirmation and understanding. Here's Brian. A lot of my regulars were actually young gay men who would call me and ask me questions about what it was like to be out, like, and would be law students at NYU or whatever, and they would have these elaborate phone phone fantasy experiences. And with me, they would say, "How did like how does anal sex really work?" Here's Mark. And yes, of course, there was there was pillow talk sometimes. Sometimes you know you would find out where they lived, and um, they would share things about their lives. There, these were. These were primarily uh, gay men who lived not in big cities where they had a lot of options in terms of sexual options. These were men who lived in second tier cities or small towns. And so they were relying on services like ours. And of course, as AIDS came, you know, appeared on the horizon and became more and more of a threat, more and more people were, li- I-, I think that that certainly played a role in the popularity of of those phone sex companies at the time. By 1983, phone sex lines were in full swing with fantasy fulfillment at $35 a call. Boosters of the business described it as a herpes-free, guilt-free sexual outlet. And for gay men, it became a site of sexual contact at a moment when the HIV-AIDS epidemic was emerging. Having phone sex with another man was a form of safe sex, one that carried no risk of infection or transmission at all. Here's Brian. Uh, Phone sex is, I argue, is a crucial pivot point in the history of gay cruising. Because at the time, phone sex was part of the big telecommunication transformation of what phone services were available and how you could make money off of telephones. But if you look at the history of gay cruising, 
Phone sex was this pivot point from moving from shared airspaces of bars and back rooms and bathhouses into telephonically computer-mediated cruising. And so some of the practices of erotic experimentation or erotic exploration or erotic curiosity that might have found its way to an adult bookstore in the era of infection means death, that was a little bit more fraught. Yet those erotic impulses, those erotic curiosities, though did not go away. So it's this interesting sort of moment. It was had a use value for gay men as they sort of maneuvered a shifting reality of how can I have casual sexy fun without it being at the risk of something more frightening than a standard STD. Here's Mark. It was not a consideration when the business, certainly when I started in the business, it wasn't a consideration. It wasn't something that had encroached on my community or among my friends yet. It was something kind of off in the distance, 1981, 1982. And uh, certainly by the time I had started my own company, 1983, 84, 85, it was was drawing nearer. And uh, certainly it was in the news a lot. It was something that customers would mention as kind of the rationale for calling us, which may or may not have been true. Maybe they were just lonely and couldn't get laid elsewhere. I mean, that's probably the case as well. I, re- I, knew, I remember when it had really arrived, AIDS had really arrived, when one of my customers during a call, you know, were going through the sex on the call, and he talked about, he described reaching in his nightstand for a condom to put on me before we had sex. And I thought to myself, wow, wow, you know, HIV and AIDS has so permeated this guy's sexual psyche that even on a fantasy call where there is no risk at all, he's reaching for the condom. And there's something profound about that that made me realize, first of all, good for him second of all how kind of him to be thinking of our safety both of our safety to do that and then wow this is really scary in a way that it that it must be here aids must have arrived that uh that this is something that has worked its way into his fantasy choreography As the phone sex industry grew, a public backlash emerged. Much of this outrage came from parents who received hefty long-distance bills when their children called dial-a-porn lines and listened to hours of pre-recorded erotic messages. Business owners also became angry when forced to pay for employees who called phone sex numbers from their office lines during working hours. Conservative politicians warned that phone sex and dial-a-porn would tear apart marriages by making it easier for men to cheat on their wives. Conservatives worried the most about the impact phone sex could have on innocent children. They alleged that young boys who learned about sex from dial-a-porn lines would go on to reenact these sexual scripts on even younger girls. Phone sex lines and dial-a-porn services, in their view, could lead to deviant and dangerous sexual behavior. But phone sex workers themselves understood their work in much different ways. They understood their work as sustaining or as exploited labor, as a type of entertainment or as a service, and often as an act of self-care or as an act of care for others. 
Opposing pornography was a winning political issue for conservatives, and it drew wide public support. Over the course of the 1980s, legislators attempted to curb the commercial phone sex industry. They tried banning phone companies from selling enhanced lines to pornographers. They tried limiting the hours of operation of phone sex services from 9 p.m. until 8 a.m. And they tried to prohibit phone sex operators from using explicit language. The political backlash caused phone sex operators and dial-a-porn services to adjust the way they talked about sex with their customers. The backlash against dial-a-porn and phone sex lines peaked in 1988, when Congress banned all indecent and obscene commercial telephone conversations across state lines. A dial-a-porn company in California called Sable Communications sued the government to stop the enforcement of this ban. Eventually, the case made its way to the U.S. Supreme Court, which found in favor of Sable Communications. As a result, the phone sex industry continued to thrive, at least for a little while. Within a decade, the advent of the internet would make the phone sex industry largely obsolete by providing new avenues for interactive sexual experiences. For the average phone sex worker, it wasn't political backlash and social stigma that caused them to quit their jobs. Rather, unfavorable work conditions created an industry with high turnover. These conditions, combined with changing personal circumstances, led the workers we spoke with to leave the trade. Mark became disenchanted with phone sex and sold his business after he discovered that he was HIV positive. Laura eventually found more reliable, mainstream work that was more appealing than phone sex. But Laura, who took calls at home, also left the industry because the boundary between her work and her private life was becoming harder to maintain. Zoe left her job at a large phone sex company after she recognized that she was being underpaid. And what caught me to quit is that the economics of it, it really bothered me. Once I kind of realized with the private lines how much they were charging per hour, and that they were giving us like $2 on the $14, yet they were charging those people like $75. And then I was like, someone's making a lot of money. Brian left his job because he was tired and overworked. He felt badly about abandoning his regular callers, and he hoped to say goodbye to them on his last day of work. But... Things didn't go as planned. I stopped because I um, sort of hit a wall uh, in my life in New York. I was mid-20s. I couldn't burn a burn candle at both ends. The job I had, if I had left Dial when I knew I needed to leave Dial, I may have not left New York. Um, but it was just like everything was sort of coming to a point where I had outgrown it and it was time for me to move on. And so I left New York. And so I quit my job, uh, my last shift. At Dial, I left New York City a few days later. The last shift was, um, it was full of disappointment because I wanted all my regulars to call so I could say goodbye. You know, that was, it was that thing of like, Why, where's, where's so-and-so? I want to say goodbye. I want to say goodbye. But it was this notion of like, uh, you know, like this all meant something to me, did it mean something to anybody else? And so it was very melancholy. Mark, who now works in HIV AIDS care and prevention, came to see his work on the phone sex lines as deeply connected to the work that he does in sexual education today. Now here I am HIV positive, and suddenly the, uh, the allure of running a phone sex company talking about sex 24-7 was losing, uh, you know, the bloom was off the road. And I sold the company, and I went to work for an AIDS agency, one of the first in Los Angeles. 
And I figured this will be the last job I ever have. I'll just do this till I die. I'm sure it'll be a couple of years. And um, much to my surprise, I didn't. And that began my career uh, working for community-based organizations, designing programs to prevent HIV among gay men. And now I write and speak as a long-term survivor. And it's funny, I don't think back about my phone sex days as much uh, anymore. And yet it's interesting how much it did inform me in terms of sexual, the sexuality of gay men and what their wants and desires are, including the simple desire to be loved and to be taken care of and to be treated respectfully and to talk about sex in a way that didn't shame them or make them feel perverted or like less of a human being because they were gay. You can't have HIV prevention that is effective if you don't treat gay men like full sexual human beings. And I learned that early on because of my years working in phone sex, and it has informed my life ever since. Ultimately, the fantasy artists we spoke with described their work as a job like any other, one that had both positive and negative aspects. Listening to the voices of sex workers can transform the story we tell ourselves and each other about sex and work and the pleasures and dangers that arise at their intersections. Here's Laura. If you're putting yourself together and you're offering a service and you're making clients happy, I feel like that should have a layer of respectability to it. And I, I think that legalizing different kinds of sex work is the answer to that problem because that allows workers to come out of the shadows and not be exploited by stronger, meaner people that want to run them or take their money or anything like that. But mostly I wish humans would just realize that the urge to do things sexually with each other is really normal and it's really okay. And pretty much unless you're into harming non-consensually or you're into children, you can find another adult to do what you enjoy doing and have have a great time and everybody's cool with it. And I just, I feel like the the false morality that's layered over people's sexual behaviors just causes so much grief for humans in the world. And I've just, I think it's kind of time to come to an end, end to that as society. Sexing History is produced by Rebecca Davis, Sunil Lee Ganawi, Devin McGee and much more, Jane Swift, Lauren Gutterman, and me. Our intern is Alexi Glover. Special thanks to Brian Herrera, Laura, Mark King, Susie, and Zoe for sharing their stories with us. Thank you as well to Caroline Bronstein for sharing her historical expertise with us. Sexing History is made possible with generous funding from a 2018 media production grant from the Humanities Media Project in the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas, Austin. The Humanities Media Project aims to tell human stories and invite critical conversations that educate, inspire, and connect communities. They believe that the humanities play a crucial role in maintaining a healthy, democratic society. If you're enjoying our show, you can help new listeners find us. Please review us on Apple Music and share us on social media. To stay up to date on all things sexing history, or to send us a note, visit us on our website, www.sexinghistory.com. From all of us at Sexing History, Thank you for listening.